Okay, if you have a Bible, would you like to turn to the book of Revelation? And uh, if you find chapter, well, chapter 4 and 5. Uh, last time we were in the book of Revelation, we, we began looking at this simply wonderful, majestic vision uh, that the Apostle John has of heaven. He's, he's invited in to see what heaven is like, God's very presence. And we, we began by looking at chapter 4. Today we're going to look at chapter 5, but both chapters are part of the same vision. So fasten your seatbelts. Uh, we're going to read both chapters together. Um, so, chapters, uh, ch- chapter 4. Um, just to say, if anyone doesn't have a copy of the Bible but would like to look in one um, and have one, why don't you just raise a hand and <laughs> I was going to say, go and get one yourself. Now, hopefully, <laughs> someone will then uh, bring you a Bible. Just keep your hand up for a bit. Um, thank you very much. They're on their way. That's wonderful. Okay, keep, keep them raised. Thank you very much for your help. Okay, Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I'd heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the centre, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, 
Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. They will reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honour and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Someone has said, no part of Scripture is more calculated to evoke worship than these two chapters of John's prophecy. They are mind-blowingly wonderful. And we began looking at them last time, focused on chapter 4, and we we saw that uh, Jesus says to John, come up here. Jesus has more to show John than the the vision and the messages he's already shared uh, in the earlier chapters. He has more for him to see. And we, we asked three questions last time to begin to understand what's in this vision. And we saw, as a result, we saw first of all that heaven is vibrant. Heaven is colourful. Heaven is bright. Heaven is loud. Heaven is awesome and wonderful. There's thunder and lightning. There's something quite terrifying about it at the same time. But there's no mistaking, heaven is vibrant. And we saw secondly that what dominates this this scene is the throne of God. And there is one throne in heaven, as it were, that God is seated on. There's one God who's in control of the entire universe on the throne. And we saw thirdly that heaven is a place of unreserved abandoned, total worship. We, we got the flavour of that in chapter 4. We're going to continue to get the flavour of it in chapter 5. And we, we also reminded ourselves of what Paul says uh, in the book of Colossians, which perhaps also lies behind John's intention writing here in the book of Revelation as well. At the beginning of Colossians chapter 3, It says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And on it goes. But an encouragement to come up here, to get heaven's perspective, to see where our hope is. And we had that such a helpful and and kind of vivid word from Deborah earlier on about, about this big mighty anchor resting in God. Well, these two chapters are showing where that anchor is. Where is our hope? It's a heavenly hope. And so we're shown this wonderful vision. And so we're going to look at three further questions. We're going to continue to look at what is heaven like by asking three further questions. And the first question isn't, Unusual one. The first question is this. What's the problem? Because at the beginning of chapter 5, there would seem to be a problem. In in kind of verses 1 through 4, we are introduced to actually a massive problem. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides. 
and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? And the problem is, the problem that heaven is confronting right at this point in time is, there's no one who's found worthy to open this scroll that is in the palm of God. Well, okay, we need to do a little bit of work here to try and understand what this problem is. And we can see right here, if you look at chapters 4 and 5, kind of as a whole, again, remembering that it's one vision, you kind of step back from it, you see that, in a sense, the beginning of chapter 5 is the very centre. It's the very heart. It's, in a sense, it's the very thick of the action. And so, what we're looking at here is not, is not a side issue. This is of central importance. And we see as well, this is a really big deal because of the way in which John reacts. When, when in verse 3, there's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, they've searched everywhere to open the scroll or even look inside. What's John's reaction? Verse 4, I wept and wept. It's a, it's a phrase to communicate noisy grief. Uh, absolute states of being distraught. John is receiving here absolutely devastating news. And John Hosier in his book has written, Heaven, and we sense the entire universe holds its breath. What's going to happen now? We've just been, we've been, t- come up here, I'm going to show you what must take place, but oh, there's a, there's a problem. And uh, we can catch a bit of a sense of it by considering what happens here at Jubilee Centre when we have a wedding. Imagine, if you will, because this hasn't yet happened, and I hope it never does. Um, what happens near the beginning of a wedding ceremony is um, I or someone else, if they're conducting the service, has to ask um, a very important legal question. Does anyone here know any lawful reason why this couple cannot be joined together in matrimony. And normally, what follows that is a hushed silence, maybe a slight nervous shuffling, and I try and say something after a few seconds, say, right, we can safely move on. But imagine what happened if someone pipes up. They've come in the back, they're sat, and they say, yes, I do. Stop everything. The entire congregation holds its breath. All these plans, all this preparation, this hopefully happy couple at the front of the building who've desired to join their lives together. But someone's got a problem. And do you know what has to happen at that point? Don't ever think this is a joke. Don't ever try this because this is what will happen. It will stop. And I would say, okay, stand up. You need to come to the front. And I'd take that person to the side and we'd look. Does this person really have a lawful reason? A reason that's kind of concrete why this joining can't take place. (gasps) What's going to happen? And if it was a joke, I would kick them and I'd then invite the happy couple to come over and punch them and cross them off their Christmas list forever. Because <laughs> it's not funny. Um, well, it <laughs> kind of is in imagination. But, well, here we have a situation where all of heaven is holding its breath, waiting to see what's going to happen. So what is going to happen? Well, we need to, again, understand how severe this problem is by actually getting to grips as much as we can anyway, with what this scroll is. Because the whole problem centres around the scroll. What is the scroll? And we kind of get a few, a few hints in the scriptures. And the most helpful hints we get um, of a few is in the book of Daniel and in chapter 12. And Daniel is another man. He's in the, uh, in the Old Testament rather than the New. Uh, so before Jesus has come. But God reveals a whole load of visions to him as well. And he gets uh, visions and kind of insights in things that are yet to come. And they're like way off into the future. And so right at the end of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, God has revealed to Daniel these, these, uh, these visions 
of the future, these visions of the end times. But then in, in chapter 12 and verse 4 he says, But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. That's what he says there. And so, you know, rather than have a book with many pages, this is one kind of, one scroll, one kind of papyrus sheet that's then rolled up, rolled up, rolled up, rolled up, all this writing on it, and it's sealed up. And God says, right, this, this, this scroll, as it were, belongs to the end time. And so, keep it bound until then. God has been revealing all of his plans, all of his, um, uh, his plan for the future of the world. But he said, no, keep it, keep it sealed up. But now we see in the hand of God this scroll. Actually, as we read on in chapter 6, we see more of what it's about as well, because the seals start to get broken and, well, it unveils God's plan. And so if you want to think, what is, what is the scroll? It's God's plan for the whole universe. It's God's plan for all of world history. And into chapter 6, um, it, uh, as the seals get broken, we see what some of those plans entail, and it's not a comfortable ride. But when you get to the seventh seal, the whole thing is laid out, and what happens? Well, God's kingdom is fully established Every other kingdom totally annihilated and defeated. There's one God, there's one kingdom, and therefore peace and justice and righteousness and joy reign forever. That's what happens when the scroll is fully open. So, it's really, really important that there's someone who can open that scroll. But there's someone who can bring about the plan. Otherwise it just remains wrapped up, sealed up, closed up, not going to happen. Unless someone can take it in hand. This is God's plan. It's really, really important. The destiny of the church and of the universe itself hangs in the balance right at this point. That is the problem. Let's just consider this for a moment, because if we, if we don't appreciate the full weight of bad news, we never appreciate the full weight of good news. Right now, we've got to consider the bad news. What would the bad news be? What would the universe look like if God's plan for the universe was never revealed, was never unfurled, as it were. For God's people, no protection. For the church, no glorious future. For those who've experienced persecution and hardship and trial because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, no justice, no ultimate triumph. We see a little bit later on in this Chapter chapter 5, we see the living creatures, or maybe it's the elders, holding the prayers of the saints in big bowls. And so all the prayers do not register, are not answered. There is no new heaven, there is no new earth, there is no eternal inheritance, there are no rewards for persevering, there are, there's no wiping away of every tear. That's why... John wept and wept. That's why he's involved in this moment of noisy grief. Now, if you're a Christian in 1996, uh, you might remember the song, There's a Place Where the Streets Shine. And if you were uh, a, a 15-year-old boy who still had a head of hair and who just bought his first electric guitar, that was the song you wanted to play. It was just vibrant, happy song. And not only was it godly, but it really had a mean riff. And so you could really get into it. Um, there's a place where the streets shine with the glory of the Lamb because of you. The words of that song would be completely different if no one can be found to open the scroll. But there is pain. There is sadness. There is suffering. 
There are tears. There's still sin. There's still injustice. There's still death. And rah, because you fell. Bah, 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 bah. Because you fell. Bah, 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 bah. Because of the scroll. It's a bad rhyme, sorry. That no one can tell. All our sins are still around. Do, 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 do. We will die forever. You get the message. That is, sorry, you're laughing, it's the bad news. Um, that's the bad news. John wept and wept. He was allowed, for a verse or so, he was allowed to imagine an eternity in which the plans of God remain sealed up. He's allowed to anticipate an eternity of God's will not being done. Ouch. Let's pray. No, we're going to carry on. Um, well, how does that, what does that say to us? How does that, how does that help us? Well, I don't know if it was Lindsay earlier on who just came and shared, you know, there's a, there's a lot of pain. A lot of, a lot of problems. Actually, God's people, we're not immune from problems. God's people like John right here, can be, maybe for a verse or so, involved in facing the biggest problems. And again, this is why John is speaking to this group of people. He's not written the book of Revelation to a bunch of Christians who've got so much time on their hands and they're so comfortable they need something to kind of puzzle them for a bit. Oh, that will keep them interested. Uh, and so he writes the book of Revelation. No, he's, he's writing to Christians who are in the thick of the action themselves. He's writing to people who are facing big problems. And he's saying, you need to get heaven's perspective. You, you need to be kind of strengthened and edified by seeing what's going on here. Because if you, you zoom in on the earth, if you set your mind on the things on the earth, there will be times when you would go thoroughly down the pan. If you fix your eyes there, so don't fix your eyes there, you, you've got to be aware, yeah, we're, we're not kind of like sticking our head in the clouds and pretending stuff is not happening, that life isn't difficult, or that God's church is not sometimes threatened by forces that seem very hostile. But John is saying, don't fix your eyes there. Don't idolise the problem. Don't make, make, don't make things so big it's almost like that becomes your God. That's this greater thing. That's, that's like Goliath. It's, that's like this huge thing. No one can deal with that. Nothing can change that. This is just the problem. And it's, oh, the problem, 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 problem. And John's saying, for a moment I looked into this horrific scenario. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end in verse for, and therefore, this message doesn't end with, there's a big problem, which is good. So, second question, is who is worthy to open the scroll? Because someone is found worthy to open the scroll. And we, uh, we see that in verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Yes, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, he has overcome, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so we see here the one who is able, and it uses, again, vivid symbol and image, but it's talking about Jesus. How do we know that? Well, it's, it uses this, verse, uh, this phrase here, see, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Well, what's that to do with? That refers us back to the book of Genesis and chapter 49. And near the end of his life, Jacob, or Israel, was, as it were, looking into the future and kind of seeing what God had in store for his sons. And he sees that actually a future ruler of God's people is not going to come from the tribe of Reuben, who was the oldest of his sons, it's going to come from uh, Judah. So in, in chapter 49 and verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you, your hand will be on the neck of your enemies, 
Your father's son will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? So that was understood to be a prediction about Jesus. The, the ruler that would come, descended from Judah, who would be utterly victorious, like a lion, tenacious, strong, defeating every foe. And so, Jewish people were expecting a Messiah who would come and be triumphant. This lion of strength. And it's a similar message, if you you like, by the title that's also given, The Roots of David. David descended from Judah. David was a great king. Um, It was a time where the nation encountered a lot of uh, success in military terms. Yes, power, strength. Root of David. There's going to be another king. He'll come. He'll descend from David, but he'll be greater from David. So he's not just the branch from David. He's the root. Come on, the Saviour's here. Yes. See, this great one of strength. And he brings about a complete victory. And he can open the scroll and therefore God's kingdom is absolutely guaranteed. We don't have to sing the twisted version of there's a place where the streets shine. We can sing the actual version. There is a place where the streets shine with God's glory. Wonderful. There is, there is protection for God's people. There is a glorious future hope. There is justice for the oppressed. There is an ultimate triumph. The prayers of the saints do register in heaven. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be an eternal inheritance with eternal rewards for uh, persevering. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be joy everlasting, a wedding, a feast, a banquet. Come on! This is what we get to see. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll He guarantees the kingdom of God. And so, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's guaranteed the Messiah has come. Then what happens? You can almost imagine that that John has, you know, that the elder, one of these angelic figures has come up to John and says, look, look up. See the line of the tribe of Judah. He turns around, and what does he see? Then I saw a lamb. Don't you just love this book? It does weird things. It's a vision, so it can do absolutely what it likes. We were turning around, we were expecting to see a lion. Lo and behold, then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne. Now, Kingdoms on the earth tend to choose impressive animals as like a national symbol. So, Great Britain has the lion, the three lions on the shirt, which is kind of appropriate. Um, apparently, Russia has the bear. Um, the USA, they, they go for the greatest of birds of prey, so they're the, the eagle, great eagle. Um, France, apparently, I think, goes for the tiger. These great kind of symbols of strength and power and glory. And what does the kingdom of God go for? It goes for the Lamb. Looking as though it had been slain. Now, you might know where this is headed, but nevertheless, let's just stick with it at this point. This is strange. This is an odd symbol to go for, because a Lamb suggests weak. The Lamb suggests defenceless. The Lamb suggests Helpless. Not only that, but it is, as we've said, looking as if it had been slain, suggesting defeat. And when people looked at Jesus on the earth, that's, many of them, that's what they saw. On a hill outside Jerusalem, in Mark chapter 15, we see an example. Jesus is on the throne. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world to die 
as a sacrifice that we might have life, taking on himself the fullness of the wrath of God as we've been, uh, as a number of people were praying about and sharing about during our time of worship. Jesus is on the cross and in, Ma- uh, in Mark 15 and in verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days? Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. See, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Call yourself a king from the, from the, from the tribe of Judah, descended from David. Come on. You're no lion. You're a weak lamb. And those religious figures, they were expecting a Messiah. And maybe they wanted, they liked the lion part. They liked the part about all foes being defeated. They liked the part about great victory and triumph. But they didn't realise that the lion is also the lamb. And so they were ready to believe. We'll believe you if you impress us with your show of strength. Come down from the cross if you call yourself a king. They were ready to believe if they were impressed. And Paul kind of explains this. Helps us to understand it when he writes to the Corinthians. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. He says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. doesn't look powerful. A lamb being slain does not look like a great symbol of strength. But in fact, it is. And he, Paul goes on to write from verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs. That's kind of what those religious leaders were doing. And Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. And perhaps for some people and for some people even here, that can be a way that you think about God and about Jesus. God, I'll believe in you if you really impress me. I'll believe you if you convince me that you're really strong. Why don't you perform some miracle now? I'm waiting. Why don't you impress me, God? In a sense, that's the mindset of the Jews that Paul describes. There's a mindset too of the of the Greeks, and, and this can be an, a way of thinking too. I'll believe in you, God, when you satisfy my way of thinking. When what I can see of you satisfies what I think is, is wise, what I think is clever. Now, God, in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite power, when he designed the way in which we are to be saved, by putting our trust in Jesus and repenting of our sin, he didn't do it in such a way as to try and impress us or to try and kind of satisfy us as if we are the kind of acid test of what's really wise and what's really persuasive and what's really uh, strong. God is not some insecure friend who's wanting to do what will please us in order to be our friend. He's God. He doesn't have to do things our way. He doesn't have to follow what we think is wise. And so, it isn't God who has to change. It's us 
It's not God who has to humble himself. Would you be my friend? It's us who need to humble ourselves. God, I've seen something. This is mind-blowing. Actually, it's okay to say we don't fully understand it. John kind of grapples here. Yet yeah, the lion and the lamb, there's, there's no one way of describing it. There's no one way of just neatly summing up God's gospel. It's big. You know, we looked at a big problem, but now we're looking at a big gospel from a big God who can't just be summed up from one kind of little photo that we quickly take in heaven. He's huge. So there's a challenge. Are we, are we going to come to him? Or are we kind of keeping God at arm's length until we're satisfied? Well, let's, let's humble ourselves and come to him. But also here, what this shows us is, is big encouragement for God's people to overcome in the same way that he has overcome. Sometimes, uh, being a Christian uh, means looking like a loser. Um, and is it as he wonder, because for Christ, coming to save us involved looking like a loser. And sometimes for God's people, that was happening in a very dramatic way, because God's people were actually dying for their faith. They, uh, they were being martyred. And some of that is the background to the lives that, people, that John is writing to in the book of Revelation. People were dying for their faith. Sometimes it involved, being a Christian involves looking like we're on the losing side. And sometimes in simpler ways, in smaller ways, perhaps in less significant ways, but in ways that still affect our lives, Christianity involves looking like the loser. So at school, what is it like? to say no to ungodliness that everyone else is doing? What is it, what is it like to know that you're in the minority um, because of what everyone else feels very free to do and throw themselves into? Um, well, standing true and persevering, even when we look like we're on the losing side, is actually what the Bible calls overcoming. And it's what Jesus has done gloriously, and it's what we're called to do, because we've got our anchor in heaven. (laughs) That's the one anchor we've got, and it's firmly planted in a glorious future with Almighty God. So there's a lot of encouragement here. You know, the, the Lamb looks weak but is actually strong. And I think that's what John is getting at here when he says it's got seven horns. Horns are a symbol of strength. The lamb looks foolish, but actually it sees everything. It knows everything. It has seven eyes. The, the lamb looks as though it's about to die. It's wounded. But actually the lamb has already died and risen to a new life and now is alive forever and is the one who gives life by the Spirit. And so we get this intriguing phrase about um, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold Spirit of God sent out into the world. The Lamb is actually powerful. The Lamb is actually strong. The Lamb is actually the one who brings life and is worthy to take the scroll. A big problem, but and the Bible reveals a big God with a big gospel and big encouragement for us. So third question. In chapter 5, how does heaven respond to all of this? It is a big response. It's almost like there's this, this growing crescendo of praise cast your mind back to the beginning of chapter 4 we saw the throne we kind of the camera zoomed out one step from the throne and we saw these mysterious four living creatures and they sing a song holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come 
And the camera then zooms out from those four living creatures who represent the whole of God's creation. And it zooms out and now we see these 24 um, elders. And they pipe up with their song. You're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. Then those two groups of angelic beings club together and they sing a new song because what they have seen, what they've heard, what's just taken place deserves something new. It deserves a new song, creative song for rejoicing because they've now seen you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And so there's this new song that begins to reverberate around heaven. But then the camera zooms out one stage Further, can it get any bigger? Olympic opening ceremony has got nothing on what takes place around about here. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. In other words, our language doesn't give us a big enough word to describe the number of angels that are then also looking in, crowding around the throne. They now see on the throne is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so they join in. They don't have a new song as such. We're told they have a song they sing with a loud voice. Innumerable angels with a loud voice. That's big. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power. And they can't just sum up what he's worthy to receive of. Worthy to receive in just one word. And so they pick seven words. And seven is a significant number. Complete. He's worthy of everything. He's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Wonderful. Can we imagine anything bigger than that. Can we imagine kind of a greater show on earth? I think that, that would be pretty huge even if it stopped there and then the response gets even bigger. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And if you like that, becomes an anthem that echoes and rings out through other chapters in the book of Revelation. You are worthy. The one who seated on the throne and the Lamb. So, Because we had this moment where we were allowed to see how big the problem was, all it does is serve to then magnify the praises of God forever. This big, huge response of praise. At the very least we can say, God is worthy of new songs, loud voices, joining together with one heart, one voice, singing praise to him. With any number of accolades we can think to give. We will never exhaust what God is worthy to receive. What we see from this response in heaven as well is again, alongside these, the big problem that we saw to start with, there's a big God with a big gospel and we also see that God has got a big plan. Let's go back to the, the third song, which is the, the, the middle of the five songs in verse 9. It says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. It goes on. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Now earlier on, in the opening verses of chapter 5, this search takes place. They're trying to find someone, just one person, who's worthy to open the scroll. And they find no one. Now, there's a different search. God searches out 
the whole world to gather people that he has purchased with his blood. Where from? From every tribe and language and people and nation. Why has he done this? To forgive our sins only and then send us on our way. That we might have an eternity of twiddling our thumbs in boredom, but at least go, well, at least there's no pain here. No, you have made them to be a kingdom, priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. God is on the throne, and he is about gathering this multi-ethnic group of people from all ages who will gather around the throne to worship him and will even join with him in reigning on a new heaven and a new earth. That's big! That's big! Today, let's just get again heaven's perspective. Heaven's perspective means that we don't ignore big problems. We're not living in some kind of cloud cuckoo land, wearing a forced smile, pretending that everything is just going swimmingly well, um, that there are, there are no problems here. No, what we do, by getting heaven's perspective, we face big problems knowing that the very biggest problem in the whole universe was solved by a big God. And not only that, but we're now part of a big plan. And sometimes when we consider the gospel, we think about the gospel on a small, personal, individual scale. The gospel is about my sin, the offence that I have caused to God. It's about my wages that I've earned by my sin. And it's about Jesus who took my place and received on himself the punishment that I deserved so that I might receive his righteousness, that I might ultimately be seated in heavenly places with God, that I might have my sins completely forgiven. And that is, that is the gospel. That is the truth. At the personal scale. What this passage in scripture invites us to do is see the gospel, the good news, in its complete bigness. We see that it's massive. And what we see here that evokes worship in us is that ultimately it's not about me. The whole of heaven hasn't gathered round me. I am drawn in and caught up with what heaven is caught up with and it's gathered around him and it's gathered around what he has done and it's gathered around how worthy he is and how massive his love is. It's gathered around the lion and the lamb and marvelling at the sheer grand scale of God's plan. Think about that when you next gather together in your core group. Little old us, in little old lounge, little bread, little wine, a discussion. And there's a city out there, there's a street out there and they outnumber you. There's a city out there, they outnumber you. There are problems in life out there and they are kind of bigger than you can handle on your own shoulders and there's stuff that we want to gather around to pray with each other for, to do with work, uh, to, do with, uh, to do with health, maybe even situations in this room, to do with persecution and hostility and uncertainty and I don't know where to put my hope and I've got my little anchor but I need to cut it off because my hope is in heaven when you're there and you feel... I'm small. We are small. We are vulnerable. We feel threatened. We don't know what the future holds in any detail whatsoever. 
I would invite you at that point to hear these words. The voice of Jesus. Not in a hushed silence, but in a trumpet blast. Come up here. Come and see things the way I see them. I see those things. I know them. But would you look at this? Would you see, oh small church, what a big thing you're a part of? Would you see my little sheep the lion and the lamb who's seated on the throne. Would you see how he has overcome the very greatest problem? One way or another, live or die, in sickness or in health, poverty or riches, success or failure, looking like a winner or looking like a loser, you're an overcomer. You're a more than conqueror. See what Jesus did. And you're a part of him. See what I've done. And come and join with me. I've got a big plan. I've got a big plan for the whole universe that nothing can thwart. Your life is part of that. Your Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, is part of that. Your whole Weak is part of that. And there's nothing that you are experiencing right now that threatens the fullness of God's plan. So we can remind ourselves, that passage in, in Colossians 3. And since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your mind, set your hearts on things above where Christ, the Lion and the Lamb, is seated in eternal glory. Let's pray.